the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, a pleasant good afternoon to you. Five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m. here on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline for the 28th of March. Hope you're having a great day, great week so far, and we're going to provide a great show, we hope, to accompany all of that. A little bit later on in tonight's program, we're going to be joined by Joyce Cordy. Joyce, of course, is the founder and president of Reimagine America. We'll talk a bit about things going on in the news. A lot of it, of course, these days seemingly focusing on Washington, D.C. Joyce Cordy joins us coming up in one half hour. Well, speaking of Washington, D.C., boy, it seems as if there are an awful lot of mixed money signals coming out of the Beltway these days. Now, you'll recall, end of December, there was a vote that made changes, historic changes, to taxation here in America. The tax rate went down, Wall Street liked it, and the Dow went up by a lot. Now, of course, we're starting to see the Dow go down. In fact, heading towards 3,000 points since it's high on the 26th of January. This because of talk about tariffs going up. Meanwhile, in order to keep inflation down, the Fed has been raising interest rates up. And all the while, Congress, of course, they seem to only know one direction. That's up, up, up when it comes to spending. So decrease the income, increase the spending, and that also means increasing the federal deficit. And we are now at the $21 trillion mark. And one has to wonder, when does all of this seemingly end? Let's certainly hope that the end doesn't mean the end of the republic. Let's get some insights. He's one of the few people in Washington, D.C. that really understands what fiscal conservatism is all about. He has a background in accounting, which helps enormously. I'm thinking maybe we need to require every member of Congress, instead of having a pedigree as a lawyer, to instead be a CPA to help figure all of this out. We are joined by Congressman Tom McClintock, who, of course, represents California's 4th District and all of us, too. Washington, D.C., and Congressman McClintock, always a delight and a privilege to have you on the program. Well, it's my pleasure, Craig. By, by the way, I'm, I'm not a CPA, and I don't have an accounting background. I simply know that when your uh, in, uh, uh, outflow exceeds your income, your upkeep becomes your downfall. <laughs> that's true of individuals, it's true of families, and it's true of countries. And that, that really sort of just capitalizes all of this in one brief sentence. Uh, th- this is clearly, as you've just articulated, Tom, um, a very basic basic concept, and yet, my goodness, some of your colleagues, what's going on? I mean, it seems as if there is no restraint whatsoever. This most recent Consolidated Appropriations Act once again demonstrates that the connection between the income and the outgo just doesn't seem to be being made. 
Well, it, it, it's very frustrating, and it's becoming very dangerous to the country. Uh, we're now carrying a, a larger proportion of our economy as government debt than we have in our entire history, if you include both the public and, uh, and intragovernmental loans. Um, which all have to be paid back. Uh, the, the loans are mainly to Social Security uh, system. Um, uh, we just cut taxes dramatically, as you pointed out, and that was absolutely essential to revive the economy. And we're getting economic numbers now that are off the scale. Stock market is a poor uh, uh, indicator of economic growth. The stock market involves a lot of different calculations, some of which involve the economy and some of which don't. Uh, uh, but the the uh, economic growth is what you ought to look at. And they just revised those numbers up to 2.9%. Uh, that compares to about 1.5% growth the prior year. So, I mean, this is, this is having a dramatic positive impact impact on the economy. Uh, and it's going to generate uh, uh, revenues to somewhat make up for that loss of revenues when you, when you cut taxes, but it won't make up all of it. That's why if you're going to cut taxes, you've got to at least hold the line on spending. And, and that's what the Congress has completely failed to do. They're going the other way. Uh, the um, uh, omnibus bill that was just signed is, is 18 percent increase in discretionary spending in a single year. And it puts us on course for, for a trillion-dollar deficit next year. And it sets the stage for a sovereign debt crisis. And just to, just to put in perspective, a trillion dollars of additional debt this year means $8,000 added to your credit card balance just as surely as if it appeared on your visa statement this, this month. Uh, and you've got to pay that back before you pay back the visa statement through your taxes. And the IRS is very good at insisting that you do. Um, uh, but it doesn't just do the damage in the future by requiring us to pay that money back in the in the future. It does two other things. Uh, 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 first, uh, uh, it, it crowds out capital because we're borrowing from the same capital market that would otherwise be available for loans to consumers to make consumer purchases and to home buyers and to businesses seeking to to expand uh, uh, jobs. Uh, they can't borrow that capital because the government has borrowed it instead uh, to, um, uh, to, to cover its deficit. The other thing uh, it does is produce enormous interest costs. Uh, we're paying about $475 billion right now in annual interest on the $21 trillion of debt that we owe. Now, $475 billion, compare that to what we spend for the Defense Department, which this year is roughly $650 billion. Um, uh, so... The, the real danger is, as, of, as credit markets, as we approach a trillion dollars of annual uh, uh, deficit, um, credit markets start to look at that and say, you know, uh, you've been a really good customer all these years. You always paid back your loans, but you're so deep in debt right now, we're not entirely sure you're going to be able to continue to do that. So, sorry, but we're just going to have to charge a little more interest to cover that little more risk that we're now assuming in loaning you money. Uh, that becomes a huge problem because every percent increase in interest rates costs us $200 billion a year in additional interest costs. They do that. Well, now we've got to go out and borrow another $200 billion. They look at that and say, well, you're getting deeper and deeper in debt. We're going to have to charge a little bit more interest. And pretty soon you enter a debt spiral. And once you've entered that debt spiral, uh, I don't know how to stop it. Right, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. You're, you're accurate when you say that the Dow is not a good indicator of economic strength, uh, unless, of course, you're a retiree and you're counting on money that you have invested um, on Wall Street for your income. Now, that said, some might say, but wait a minute, Tom, though, is debt necessarily a good indicator of what might happen to the economy in a negative sense? Because after all, gee, we went from 
seemingly the good old days when our debt was only at four or five trillion to now twenty twenty one trillion dollars a more than doubling of the debt under the Obama the eight years of the Obama administration mm-hmm. is it necessarily that big number or the interest that's tied in that really is the teller here it's both the debt has to be paid back uh, uh, out of future productivity uh, and the interest has to be paid back right now and uh, when you borrow money you crowd out the capital market so that money's not there to loan for economic growth that is a drag on the economy. You've got to shovel out, again, as I said, $475 billion this year just to pay the interest on that debt of, of a, 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 an amount that is now fast approaching the size of our entire defense budget. Um, uh, th- those all inhibit economic growth. Uh, a debt, in my judgment, is always a bad thing. Uh, uh, sometimes it's necessary in an emergency, like in a war. Uh, 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 it's uh, sometimes necessary when you have a capital-intensive project, um, uh, you know, such as the Louisiana Purchase, where you've got to come up with a lot of money fast and then amortize that over the years as the value of that in- investment begins to bear fruit. Uh, uh, those are all good reasons for debt, but debt's never healthy, and it is lethal. Uh, if you're running it up just to meet your general operating expenses, and that's what this country's been doing for quite a while now. Yeah, that's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, as you point out, if we were at war, we could sort of say, well, it's time to sort of tighten the belt here. We understand the need for this because we have a crisis going on. There's well, no crisis right now. We're 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 happy as, uh, you know, uh, thick as thieves, as they say. We're as happy as could be. We're seeing some spectacular numbers. We're looking at the GDP approaching almost 3%. It hasn't been at that number in years and years and years, and yet the continuing level of spending, as you pointed out in your opening remarks, discretionary spending under this package, 18% increase. At the same time, we've lowered the tax rate, and so that means less money coming in. And I understand that the president's viewpoint is, well, though, that stimulates the economy. Ultimately, more people making more money. Ultimately, we all pay more money in. And so it all sort of works out in the wash, as they say. But but here's my concern with all of that, and that is that aside from the ongoing additional burden of the debt and the operating debt, you've also got the interest rate that's being increased by the Fed to control inflation. And that plays a major part in this, doesn't it? It does, but it would be compounded if markets got a little skittish about our ability to pay back uh, that debt. That would would be what would really send our rates starting to increase uh, and our interest costs ballooning. Uh, Hemingway said that there, there are two ways you go bankrupt. First, very gradually, and then quite suddenly. And I'm afraid we're at the edge of that cliff right now, and that this bill has put us there. Let's pause on that point. If you just joined us, we're visiting today with Congressman Tom McClintock. Um, he, of course, represents the state of California and all of us to the Washington, D.C. area. He, on behalf of the 4th Congressional District, we're talking a bit about this new Consolidated Appropriations Act and the, the bigger picture here. And I think it really requires us to step back as we're excited about the change in the tax rate, a multi-billion dollar tax cut that went to a corporate and private private sector. That's all exciting news. We've seen a great uptick in the GDP. I think a lot of that has to do with coming in and removing a lot of these draconian regulations that basically put a drag on business economically, put the brakes on economic growth. Those are good things. 
The challenge, of course, is no restraint when it comes to spending. And it seems as if this big can, we keep talking about kicking the can down the road, this big can called the deficit that's now at $21 trillion in rising, we, we seem to as if to think that we can just put this reckoning off forever. And as Tom McClintock is appropriately pointing out, that's not necessarily the case. Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of our conversation. California Congressman Tom McClintock with us tonight. A timeout, an update with traffic, and then we'll be back to more of our conversation with Tom McClintock. Right now, though, a quick conversation. Michael Bennett's got a look at the road home on this Wednesday at 515. Michael, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When we saw all of the impact of the um, derivatives repackaging and, and the, ultimately what happened in both the markets and real estate, and at one point, it seems like a million years ago now, but by uh, 2008, 2009, we saw the Dow Jones Industrial Average at barely 6,000 and change. I guess we shouldn't complain when it's dropped 3,000 points and it's up still up over 23,000. But regardless... The Fed came in at that point and said, okay, we need to make some drastic changes. And they continued to lower the overnight rate so that by December of 08, it was at 0.25 basis points, basically free. We have, since December of 08, seen an increase, in fact, a total of six increases, taking the lending rate now as of March to 1.75%. And every indication from the Fed is that they're going to continue to raise those rates. So that puts some pressure on this entire, um, I don't know, what do we call it, uh, Tom McClintock, Congressman McClintock? Is this, is this potentially a, a house of cards here? We continue to spend. The rates continue to go up. What does it take for this thing to just collapse, some sort of a, a, a major geopolitical event that suddenly it, it just becomes a, 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 an implosion? I asked that question of several economists who testified to the budget committee a few year House Budget Committee a few years ago, and uh, their response was, "Well, there's there's no way really to tell. It could be anything." But they said they they said we can tell you this: you hit a trillion dollars of annual deficit, um, uh, you will have set the stage uh, for that to happen. And 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 that, by the way, is called a sovereign debt crisis. It's, it's once you get into the debt spiral that we've been talking about. Uh, at some point, uh, the capital market, folks who lend us money, uh, governments, uh, institutions, individuals, uh, simply stop lending that money. Um, you lose access to the credit market. That's called a sovereign debt crisis. If you want to know what that looks like, Venezuela is going through that right now. Within our own borders, uh, uh, Puerto Rico is going through that right now. Of uh, basic services, including law enforcement and infrastructure like electricity, uh, uh, simply collapse. The pension systems implode, businesses flee, um, a population flees, uh, and um, uh, if you're a country, uh, you go into a period of hyperinflation and, um, and, and quite often a general collapse. You know, history is warning us that um, uh, the countries that bankrupt themselves simply aren't around very long. You know, that's why Admiral Mike Mullen, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that in his professional military judgment, the greatest national security threat to our country is the national debt. And that was about $6 trillion of debt ago. Wow. And you mentioned Puerto Rico. I find it fascinating and troubling at the same time that we're not in a position to be able to help our own U.S. territory, and in large part because we look at the scenario there and say, you know what, they've got too much debt. And yet here we are as a major debtor ourselves. 
Well, exactly. And, and before the hurricane struck Puerto Rico, it was already in a sovereign debt crisis. Its services were already collapsing. Of, of, uh, and, and I think the, the, the analogy of the hurricane is, is very important. That's when you need debt capacity. When you're hit with an unforeseen emergency, that's when you need to be able to borrow. If you've borrowed for your general expenses over the years to the point where you can't pay back that debt and nobody's loaning you money, you've lost access to the credit market. You can't respond to an emergency. You know, looking at it another way, the, the percentage of debt that we have to GDP right now uh, is of uh, – we've only been – close to this one other time, and that was at the very end of World War II, uh, when we had exhausted all of our resources. We had exhausted our credit. The bond sales across the country were failing. And in the spring of 45, there was a quiet panic going on over whether we could continue the war into 1946, because we were simply out of resources. Um, Harry Truman came in, cut taxes, by the way, cut taxes pretty dramatically, abolished the excess profits tax in 1945, uh, reduced the federal income tax rate in 1946. But he also, while he was cutting spending, all or cutting taxes, he was also cutting spending dramatically. He took the federal budget from $85 billion in fiscal 45 down to $30 billion in fiscal 46 fired 10 million federal employees. It was called war demobilization. The Keynesians at the time predicted 25% unemployment in the second Great Depression. Instead, we had the post-war economic boom. Uh, uh, so cutting taxes is an important stimulus to the economy, but you've got to cut spending at the same time or at least restrain it. Tom, let me ask you another question. And I realize, in all fairness, you're, you're not an economist. You don't have a crystal ball. But just your sense from all of your years of experience, and you do have a tremendous amount of expertise when it comes to budgets. You began here in California, now certainly many, many years in Congress in Washington. Um, the president, who has talked much about trade imbalances, tariffs. There is no doubt about the argument that everything from uh, the TTT proposal to certainly NAFTA, many of the things that past administrations have gotten us into have been a major drag on many U.S. industries, and there's been, quite frankly, no fairness, no parity whatsoever. So I think most of us can agree that bringing back balance to tariffs makes sense. It isn't fair for China to import things to the United export things to the United States, and we, we ask of them a 2% tariff, and then when we send things back to them, they want 25%. But all of this talk has suddenly had a major impact on the response by Wall Street. And I have to wonder, if the president goes in and says, okay, starting X day, we're putting X percentage of tariffs on all foreign steel, foreign aluminum, other foreign products... Then we have a tit-for-tat, and countries like China respond in kind. That money is going to come from somewhere. Certainly, that means that prices will be higher at the cash register. That puts more pressure on inflation. Suddenly, now the Fed comes in and says, well, we have to control inflation, so let's raise rates. Is this a potential implosion scenario, if for no other reason, that maybe we're going at it too quickly? I disagree with the basic premise that there are times when tariffs are good. Tariffs are never good. Tariffs always hurt an economy. There's not a single exception in all recorded history uh, to that maxim. I, I think uh, Laffer and Kudlow uh, put it best a few weeks ago when they pointed out, we want to really screw over a country uh, without actually going to war. You know, a, a, a country like Korea, North Korea or Iran, uh, what do we do? We impose economic sanctions. What are economic sanctions? 
They're measures to impede the ability of that country uh, to import products. What is a tariff? It is a, uh, 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 a policy to impede the import of tariffs. That's what we do to our worst enemies. Why in the world would we want to do it to ourselves? Uh, 150 years ago, Frederick Bastiat, the, the, the famous economist, addressed exactly these same issues. One of the points he raised was, you know, look at all the money we invest in ports and uh, railroads and shipping. And, we, and why do we do that? We do that to overcome the uh, obstacles that nature has p placed in the way of our ability to trade with others. Why, having put all that money to overcome these natural obstacles, would we then erect artificial obstacles of our own making to replace them? That is simply nuts. A tariff uh, uh, will invariably uh, 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 raise the prices for consumers and reduce uh, the um, availability of materials for manufacturers. Remember, every producer is also a consumer. No consumer in the history of the world has ever benefited from higher prices. No producer has ever benefited from scarcer materials, and yet that is exactly what tariffs do. So what is this? Is this grandstanding? Is this attempting to uh, put on a show for the benefit of China to maybe encourage them to change some things in the way they do business with us? I hope that it's part of a grand negotiating strategy that is far beyond my ability to comprehend, because I can tell you on its face, it is absolutely terrible economics. And it's not as if we haven't tried this before. Thomas Jefferson thought that tariffs would, would protect American manufacturing uh, and finance the federal government. Instead, they almost destroyed the entire economy. We had one of the worst recessions in our history uh, as a result of that in the second uh, t uh, Jefferson administration. Uh, Herbert Hoover responded to the uh, recession of 1929 with the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. It was a steep tariff on about 20,000 imported products. Uh, it is largely blamed for uh, uh, turning the recession of the 1929 into the depression of the 1930s. Tariffs always do harm to the country that practices them. And as I said, I don't know of a single exception to that maxim. So in the short term, what's the answer? I mean, you've, you've given us a lot of information here today, and I always appreciate the succinct manner in which you do that. It, it tends up to be a, a reality check and a wake-up call, and we could probably get millions of Americans that would all raise their hand and say, I thoroughly agree, and Tom McClintock for president. But how do we get the rest of your colleagues to understand this? Well, ultimately, the market's going to intervene. Uh, at some point, uh, we will, end, and, and I'm afraid it's sooner now rather than later, we will enter the debt spiral that we've already discussed, uh, and that will end with a sovereign debt crisis. Um, that's not manageable. Uh, I don't know how to stop a debt spiral once it's started, uh, given the amount of debt we're now carrying. Uh, uh, and a, in countries that go into to, uh, a sovereign debt crisis uh, rarely come out the same. Uh, you remember all the time we were growing up, Craig, the great national nemesis of our country was the Soviet Union, second most powerful military force on the planet, a constant threat we used to uh, drill hiding under our desks uh, uh, for fear that war would break out with them at any time. One morning we all woke up and the Soviet Union was gone. It wasn't defeated militarily. It defeated itself uh, by uh, by bankrupting itself. 
Yeah, that's very true. And, and if I when, was the Chinese, I'd just be sitting back right now and saying, don't worry about the Americans. They're, they're destroying themselves. And, you know, sadly, oddly, in history, uh, many of the great nations, many of the great states uh, have done just that. They didn't uh, collapse because of the threat from without, but they collapsed because of the threat, in this case, economic stupidity from within. Tom, we always appreciate your time, and I know you're busy back there doing a great job for us. I wish we could just, if, if cloning were, were illegal for just a moment, I would say we need 535 Tom McClintocks. Well, that would be a very boring place. Yeah, it might be, but we'd be in a lot better economic conditions, believe me, were that the case. Tom, thanks again so much for the time, my friend. Always good to visit with you. California Congressman Tom McClintock, representing our state to Washington, D.C., one of the few clear-thinking heads back there who gets this. Now, if we could just get the rest of them to get this, because if somebody doesn't get it soon, we're all going to get it. (laughs) Thank you, Mr. Sound Effects Man. (laughs) We're doing an episode of uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents here. Uh, About as frightening, too. Unbelievable. Trillion-dollar operating deficit. We're heading there. Every year. Just spend, 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 spend. Any sense of fiscal conservatism amongst the majority of Republicans? Gone. Tax party? All of that talk about restraint spending? I I guess they're happy we got the tax reduction bill in. The spending reduction bill part? Nah. We're too busy enjoying the party, patting ourselves on the back. I've said enough. 5.30. See what's going on there traffic-wise. Michael Bennett, please stop me before I say any more. <laughs> and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline as we turn a corner into current affairs. My goodness, there's an awful lot going on this week. And certainly some of the, some of the top stories include the debacle concerning Zuckerberg, Facebook, and the allegation that they've sold private data collected on some 50 million users. Well, let's dig down deep as we're joined by our dear friend Joyce Cordy. Joyce, of course, is the founder and president of Reimagine America and hosts the radio broadcast Reimagine America every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Joyce, is always, a delight and an education to have you join us. It's my pleasure. You know that. Now, you know, as many of our listeners know, that a number of years ago, the vocalist Lena Horne had a huge hit with Stormy Weather. That was a big hit for her. Uh, There's been another (laughs) storm brewing, in this case, that of Stormy Daniels. It might not turn out to be such a big hit, though, for President Trump. You had a chance, I imagine, to see the 60 Minutes piece on Sunday. What did you think about that? Is this a whole lot to do about nothing, given the fact that it's not really news, that there's somebody seated? in the White House that's a philanderer? Well, I think we've had a number of philandering presidents in in our history. Um, the The issue is that the first one who, who they went public on, the press went public on, was Clinton, and that kind of, you know, changed the dynamic. So uh, personally, I would prefer the kind of boring personal life presidency of either of the Bushes or Obama, who are, you know, real live husbands. But um, I thought the interview Sunday night was frankly underwhelming. I think the issue behind that interview 
of whether or not Michael Cohn paid $130,000 of somebody's money two weeks before an election to hush somebody up um, is a matter that the Federal Elections Commission has to look at. You know, I, I think that is a serious, um, if that's an in-kind contribution, then that's a violation of law. And Michael Cohn, as a member of the New York Bar, knew it was a violation of law. And the admission that the president's made by uh, being an also known as in the California lawsuit does raise concerns that you, you know, we need to get to the bottom of that. And unfortunately, what the FEC has said is it will take them a year, a year to figure this out. Wow, that takes some unraveling. I don't know that it's necessarily that complicated. I mean, at the end of the day, what was the old line from a Deep Throat in the uh, in the Watergate case? Just follow the money. Now, I'm curious, yeah. in your opinion, Joyce, all things being equal, understanding that no president has been perfect in the White House. We've seen plenty of cases down through election cycles of an October surprise. This might suggestively be a attempt to try and quiet or um, squash a October surprise from happening given the fact that allegedly this payout took place a matter of days prior to the November election in the fall of 2016. But I wonder, is is this the story? Is the involvement of hush money the story? Do we look at this and say, well, guess what? This doesn't really rise to the level of foreign intervention or foreign meddling with a presidential election. Where, where do you see this on sort of the scale of things, given the Mueller investigation, some of the other challenges that are being faced by this administration and the Stormy Daniels interview? Um, I think the Russian investigation is a lot more important. Uh, frankly, uh, you know, I, I almost think the fact that they paid Stormy Daniels off after I listened to the 60 Minutes interview, this was a one-night stand. Um, and, and, um, and so I, I, think, I think if that had just gone public a few days before the election, it would have had the same impact as the um, extra uh, TV tape that, uh, that uh, Billy Bush paid a much higher price for than did Trump. Um, so from that standpoint, I think the Russian the Russia investigation is very real. Does it create, though, any I, sort of a moral dilemma for conservatives in the sense that, turning back the clock 20 years now, much to do about everything from Paula White, Monica Lewinsky, Paula Jones, rather, um, Linda Tripp, all of that scenario in relationship to the Clinton White House. And now here we are 20 years later, and we're hearing other nefarious activities taking place. Does it create a problem for conservatives who heavily criticized Bill Clinton for his behavior both in and out of office and then suddenly be presented this information, this revelation regarding the behavior, at least prior to office, by Donald Trump. Is it difficult in the sense that if you don't give equal time and equal fairness by criticizing both or eschewing criticism of both, that you're not really fair and balanced? Ah, I think that argument could be made. Um, I would just rack it up to um, blatant political hypocrisy. You know, that the, the Dems went after... The Republicans went after Clinton for uh, lying under oath 
um, about the same thing that um, that Donald Trump has lied about um, to in in terms of uh, the national electorate. But but so, interesting to note though that there's one except one exception here, Joyce, and that is that we're typically the president is very quick to respond to his critics by jumping on Twitter. He has been strangely silent over the last almost week now in relationship to anything concerning that. And, of course, when the press brought that up in the White House press briefings, uh, immediately the, the, the official line was, well, the president has addressed this before. This is not new news. Why rehash old territory? I just find it interesting that this is the particular topic upon which, finally, President Trump has demonstrated some restraint when it comes to hopping on Twitter. Well, yeah, because if if he gets anything he says on Twitter can be used in a deposition. And remember what they what they impeached Clinton for, not for the affair, but for lying to the investigator. So Trump is in the same situation. If if he gets deposed by this very aggressive California attorney and he says it didn't happen and she's got proof that it did, that's perjury. So that's why, that's one reason he's being quiet. The other reason he's being quiet is, as they were deplaning um, last Friday at Mar-a-Lago, did you notice that Melania Trump carefully put the hand that she was not using to hold the handrail, the other hand went in her pocket? Yeah, you could read so, a lot of signals off of that, can't you? Yeah, it's kind of like if you are on really thin ice, Donald. Well, we've heard if stories that have been repeated by Donald. members of the Secret Service that have talked about hearing flower pots crashing against walls and screaming and yelling taking place with a high-pitched female voice during the Clinton years as certain revelations regarding Bill's behavior went public. So I suspect maybe with a greater degree of finesse and restraint, uh, she's doing the same thing here. It's kind of a cold burn. But yeah, wa- watching that deplaning scene uh, was certainly notable to, to, to soak in the fact that this is right after these revelations have really begun to heat up in the press. And she's clearly, if not demonstrating a public opinion about this, she's letting her husband know she's not happy. Absolutely. And she's making no bones in public. I've never seen her put her hand in her pocket before in any occasion. She usually will have her hands folded in front of her, if you know. But he very often tries to reach for her hand when they're coming off an airplane, and she made sure he couldn't. How problematic do you see this potentially being for the midterm elections? I realize that this is President Trump's problem, not the Congress's problem, but, you know, uh, it rolls downhill, as the old saying goes. And I, and I have to wonder, in relationship to, you know, there's a curiosity factor here that many Democrats that find this very upsetting and they're highly offended by all of this has suddenly found the moral compass that apparently didn't exist 20 years ago during the Clinton administration. But I have to just wonder, in terms of of potential fallout, uh, can this have an impact on the midterm elections? You know, I think the persona of Donald Trump will have an impact on the midterm elections, but I don't think this specific instance, I, I don't think that Stormy Daniels is a particularly sympathetic character in the way that um 
you know, the, that, um, what's her name? Oh, I hate senior moment. Um, the, the, that Clinton... Oh, Monica Lewinsky. Monica Lewinsky. Well, Monica Lewinsky was a significantly younger. She was the White House intern. There, there's, there's, there's all kinds of dynamics in relationship to that. They kind of smacks of, of the older man taking advantage. And if anything came out on Sunday, Stormy Daniels was very careful in articulating that this was fully consensual, that nothing untoward took place. She wasn't forced into anything. So aside from maybe questions related to did some, you know, potential threatening figure approach her in the parking lot and say, don't talk about this, did that or did it not happen, and who actually made the $130,000 payment and what was the source of that that money. Uh, Other than those questions, this is probably not something that's going to have a a real long-term legs then, you're saying. I think think only if it only has life, you know, again, the, the, the Lewinsky situation, you have a very sympathetic victim, so to speak. In this, in 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 the Stormy Daniels situation, you have the opposite. I mean, I I looked at her and I said, you know, that's a tired middle-aged woman. I mean, I don't see, you know, I I, I didn't feel sympathetic toward her at all. Well, and so even I at the think- even at the time of this event, there is the sense that uh, well, here is an opportunity, an opportunist rather, waiting to uh, take advantage of an opportunity, and 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 certainly it's it's not the same sort of sell so to speak, to, the, you know, the tabloid press, press elite this up for a while, but long term, I don't know that the, the voting public is going to be terribly swayed one way or the other. If you've just joined us, visiting today with Joyce Cordy, talking about the events of the week, lots of interesting headline news going on from the Beltway to certainly Silicon Valley. We'll get to that dynamic of the story. Joyce's program, by the way, Reimagine America can be heard every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. So we invite you to set your clock and be sure to tune in for her program. Details available, too, on her website at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. A brief timeout, an update on traffic. Back with more in our conversation with Joyce Cordy. Coming up next, the tongue lashing that's handed out by Tim Cook toward Mark Zuckerberg. Details as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline here on this Wednesday afternoon. And we're taking a look at the top stories of the week with us as always. A pleasure to have Joyce Cordy. Joyce, of course, is the host of Reimagine America. Her program can be heard every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer, where she tackles a lot of these very same topics in depth. Information, by the way, about her program and the organization online at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Joyce, I want to turn a corner and pivot to another topic that's starting to gain a lot of attention. I've long been someone concerned about violation of privacy. We, I think, watch with horror what happened with the whole Expedia uh, unfolding a year, not even barely a year ago, that we saw the private information from the very public, now public, uh, credit reports of 140 million Americans uh, be obtained by, at this point, we don't know whom and for what purpose. We just know that it's not a very good scenario. And now we're beginning to get revelations that Facebook 
our friend that helps keep us connected with other friends across the planet, has in fact been calling out personal information of some 50 million users and allegedly turned that, sold that information over to the electioneering firm Cambridge Analytica, which raises more questions about not just Russian bots and and, uh, Russian operatives buying ads and, and posing as Americans, posting things during the election, but now to find out that Facebook gathered, harvested all of this information unknowingly to users and then turned around and sold it? Wow. No wonder Tim Cook is upset. Uh, I don't blame Tim Cook, who's, I'm sure whose personal information, you know, has it, it has been compromised, as has yours and mine. Um, because that $50 million is uh, what Cambridge Analytica got through an app. So when you are online... Listen carefully, folks. When you go online and and you're looking at an app you've not been in before, and they say, and it says, sign in with your face with your Facebook ID. What we've now discovered is you think you're just giving them your public profile, i.e., your your email address, etc., um, and maybe a picture or if you have one on Facebook. Heck, no. What Facebook has been doing despite their consent decree of 2014 to not give your private information, what happens is that app developer can go in and harvest anything that's on your profile. That's who your friends are, what kinds of sites you you um, tend to look at, what do you like. Uh, gee, are you a dog owner because you posted a video of your own dog that will immediately get you an ad from iHeartDog? But in addition to that, if you are holding an Android device in your hand, and I'm not, uh, they have been collecting, you know, uh, they've been collecting way more information then you are then the government is allowed to collect under the Patriot Act. Now you you know that every couple of years we argue about how much government data the government how much of your private data the government should be able to harvest from your cell phone communication, okay, in terms of keeping us safe from overseas terrorism. And there's a battle. Well while that battle has been raging and I'm as enraged as Tim Cook what we are now finding is that Android has a much more open back end than iPhone. And our friends at Facebook, when you sign up for Messenger, and, and I'm sure you've been, if you're like me, they pummeled me until I signed up for Messenger. But if you have an Android phone and you're using Messenger, every single word that you speak or you type on that Android device is now in the possession of Facebook for the use of Facebook to make money. All right? So I am going to say unequivocally, Tim Cook is right. The CEO of IBM who supported his position is absolutely right. It is time for Congress to get into the business of regulating these big media platforms because they are coming for every bit of our privacy, and their intent is very simple. It is to manipulate what we think. It is to it, it is it is a new form of feudalism. 
if we let them get that much of our privacy. Well, and it's also a great, uh, shall we say, income stream as well. I mean, let's face it. I, some have criticized Tim Cook and say, well, no, wait a minute, Tim. You sell Apple TVs, iPhones, Macs. You, you have a, a hard product that you sell. What Facebook is involved in, largely stock and trade, is intellectual property. It's a social media platform. It's communication platforms like WhatsApp. And they've got their fingers in some other pots I've I realize as well, but largely they don't really produce anything, so to speak. So the, the, the collecting and trading and selling of information is really kind of at the core of, of who they are as a corporation. I think what's, what's troubling about this is there are a lot of innocent Americans that divulge information thinking, well, they certainly would never do anything with this, or how could there ever be any value to this, not realizing that when you, when you click on that little I agree box that relates to the legal language that goes on with the user end agreement for 500 pages written by a whole collection of Yale and Harvard University and Columbia University law professors, that you are, in some respects, surrendering all of that information and and now they're turning around and they're they're taking huge advantage of people that I think, frankly, to the greatest degree, Joyce, really don't have any concept of just how much information and data is being collected by these companies on us. And it's one thing to say they're selling it. What happens if it gets into the hand of somebody else that has more nefarious intents in mind? Well, there is a wonderful book out there called The World Without a Mind. And the contention, and this is written by somebody who comes from the venture capital world. I mean, Roger McNee is not the only person who who has been involved with Facebook who is now going, wait a minute, what kind of a monster have I created? Okay? So behind that, before I explain that piece, let me, let me just say in, in plain and simple English, um, the movie that was made about Zuckerberg and the twins who originally thought they came up with Facebook, it didn't portray Zuckerberg in a really nice light. But that movie was, was really kind. What we have in Mark Zuckerberg is a baby-faced robber baron who is, um, you know, puts to shame some of 19th century's um, biggest uh, robber barons. Um, and the, the folks who led to, uh, you know, like the band, like Commodore Vanderbilt, who led to um, the creation of things like the Federal Trade Commission and and um, and uh, the FEC in response to his larceny. Okay, so um, the fact is, here's the difference. Okay, Apple is a product company all right they sell you a product through which you can use various things um they are because of their international market because of the size of their influence in china very concerned about making sure the instrument in your hand is not cannot be hacked or attacked by uh by a government hacker all right, that privacy thing where they couldn't open the back of the phone in the San Bernardino thing is very deliberate for that international market, and it makes a ton of money for them. Okay, Apple is, um, but Apple tells you what they do. What we have in um, Facebook and Google and to an extent Amazon are companies that masquerade as one thing while being something else. 
Okay, so in the case of Apple, the phone, the box, whatever, is the product. And yes, they are collecting information because they're trying to figure out what the next, from about you and how you use this stuff, okay? Because they are trying to figure out what, what is the next thing they should invent and then tell you you absolutely can't live without it. The difference is Facebook is taking your information and saying to anyone who wants to buy it, um, we're just a platform. Here is this data. You can buy it. You can, you can use it. You know, where you can manipulate it in any which way, and we've got algorithms that will make, that will help you to reach whatever your target audience is and convince them with speed and rapidity that what you are telling them, as vacuous as it may be, is truth. And let me give you one last statistic and you can respond to that. 2.4 million people a day look at Fox News. Now, you and I would give our IT for that rating, right? Absolutely. Well, Facebook, 140 million people get their news from Facebook. And Facebook is nothing but a group of algorithms available for sale to any nefarious state or non-state actor that wants to buy that data and have one of those algorithms created for their purpose. I don't think that that can go on unregulated in the United States. Well, especially if there's no gatekeeper. And and the challenge, of course, becomes that if you have a public entity, meaning uh, some branch of the government, at least that is answerable to we the people, that is engaged in some form of being a gatekeeper, the problem is that even if they talk about, well, we'll begin self-policing, well, you see how well that's worked so far. It hasn't. Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of our conversation. A visit today with Joyce Cordy. Joyce, of course, is the host of Reimagine America. Heard Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. More information available on the web at reimagineamerica.org. A brief timeout, an update on traffic. We'll pick up the conversation just where we left off. So stay right with us as this edition of Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 